you'll see, as you probably already have, that in the immediate verses before us that we're going to be studying, verses 14 and 15, we have a central tenet of the Christian faith before our very eyes. Namely, the return of Jesus Christ. The text does not say everything that could be said about the second coming. It highlights a specific aspect of Jesus' return, namely the fact that Jesus is coming again in judgment. In judgment. So the text before us provides implications of Christ's return for the ungodly. You saw in verse 15, that word ungodly is mentioned four times. So this is a look at the return of Christ with a specific focus towards the implications of that return for the ungodly. Whether they wear the label of apostate, remember apostate is one who has departed from the faith. They were in the church but never really of the church. But it could also apply to those who never even walked the narrow path, even if temporarily. It could apply to those who stayed far away from the narrow path and said, I don't ever want to go near that path of Christianity. It has application to apostates who have gone off from that path and to those who have never even wanted to set foot on that path. As we make our way into the text, though, I want to remind you, albeit briefly, of the other side of the coin. Because when Jesus returns, it is a day of judgment for the ungodly. But before we get into that text, I want to briefly remind you of the other side of the coin. When Jesus returns, it is a day that is a glorious and blessed day for all of his people. It's two sides of the same coin that are presented in Scripture. The coin, if you will, is the coming of Christ. And on one side, there's the judgment for the ungodly. And on the other side, there is the culmination of salvation for the godly, those who have been regenerated by his grace and have been made his people. This is the day that Paul spoke of in Philippians 1.6 when he said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Christians in Corinth and subsequently Christians beyond Corinth are told that God will sustain them to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the promise of God's preservation. God will sustain His people. And then you have the promise of being presented to God, even as we're going to see a little bit later on in Jude's epistle, as guiltless before the throne of a holy God. You go on in Scriptures and you could see that this is the day of redemption that's referred to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. On that day, Christ will descend from heaven. You see this in 1 Thessalonians 4. You could look at verses 16 and 17. That Christ will descend from heaven. Then the dead in Christ, they will rise first. And then those who are alive will be joined to meet them with Christ together in the air. And so forever we will be with the Lord. That's what's also happening when Jesus returns. The dead in Christ rise. Those who are alive are caught up. And in the twinkling of an eye, they too receive their glorified bodies. And they join the Lord in His return on that moment. Moment. It's a glorious moment. It's a glorious day. We are to, per 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with those words. I mean, the examples could go on. John wrote, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Like now, in the here and now, we are the children of God. But then he goes on, and he would go on and he would say this, And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
speaking of the glorified bodies that believers are going to have. When Jesus returns, we will be like him. In the twinkling of an eye, those who are on earth will be gathered together to meet those who have ascended to meet Christ in the clouds with glorified bodies. You can go on. Paul wrote, uh, when writing... um, When writing into the church of Colossians, he said, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see that believers are going to receive incorruptible, pure, glorified bodies on that day. It's a glorious appearing. It's a longed-for coming where his people will receive rest, the ultimate rest, from their trouble. At least those on the earth. You can look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. They will receive the rest from the tribulation that they've longed for. That's just one side of the coin. The passage that we're going to look at today deals with the other side of the coin. Now, this isn't the only passage in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament that deals with the coming of Christ and the judgment that's connected with it. You could look at a place like Zechariah 14. I would encourage you to read through the entirety of Zechariah 14 and you kind of get to walk through what happens when Christ returns, what happens when judgment happens, a picture of what happens arguably after Christ returns and so on. You can go through Zechariah 14 and see that. But one of the pictures there that describes the judgment is found in verse 12. Zechariah 14, verse 12 says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. The context in that chapter is that Jerusalem has been surrounded and assailed. That's where the story kind of reaches its crescendo before Christ returns. And then we are told this, talking about those who stood in rebellion against Christ before His return, Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. That ties in with how Paul describes the coming destruction of the man of lawlessness, i.e. the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, The Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. But it's not just him. You go back a chapter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10, through 10, you see Paul talking to Thessalonian Christians who were persecuted. And he tells them that God is going to come and God is going to judge those who have persecuted them. And he says in verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10 through 10 gives you both sides of the coin. You see that. He's going to be admired by those who are His people who say, I've longed for this moment. I've waited for this moment. And then it's going to be the sad but just realization for those who have rebelled against His grace and spurned His grace for so long. That it is the day of God's justice when Christ comes on that day. Well, now that we're going to get into what Jude has to say about this, but the question could appropriately arise, well, why was this so important for the Christians of Jude's day to understand? 
Uh, like, like, what's the application? Okay, Jude's going to share a prophecy from Enoch that deals with the Lord's coming. Why is it so important for the Christians of Jude's day or the Christians of today to be aware that when Christ comes, the ungodly will be judged? And the train of thought in the epistle is this. Jude is arguing. He's setting forth reasons so that Christians will stay away from apostates. That they will stay away from false teachers. That they will stay away from those who would lead them astray. And he's given a bunch of reasons why. But here's a particular reason. Because their end is this. And if you follow them, if you go down their path, I want to show you what their end is. Their end is judgment. And if you don't want judgment, get off the path that they're on. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't be influenced by them. That's why Jude is setting this forth. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's showing them. You see earlier in Jude. In Jude verse 4. This has been marked out from long ago. It's been written down beforehand. We looked at that when we studied verse 4. It's been prophesied. He's given them examples of what it's going to look like, so to speak. It's like Israel when they perished in the wilderness. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah when it was judged. It's like the angels who were were judged with everlasting chains reserved for the fire of that great day and so on. The judgment of that great day. And now he is setting before them a prophecy to further affirm the truths that he has already set forward. We come to our text, Jude, verses 14 and 15, where we read, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here, we are introduced to Enoch. Enoch is not first introduced here. You meet him, if you will, in the fifth chapter of Genesis. He is, as we're told right here, the seventh from Adam. You can see that in the genealogy there in Genesis 5, a point which I think reinforces the tightness as well as the historicity of the Genesis genealogies. Well, if you don't know much about Enoch, let me tell you a little bit about him. We don't have that much that's written about him in the scriptures, but what we do have is rather inspiring. He was a godly man. We are told in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. I remember when I was teaching uh, some of the kids in classical conversation some years back about Enoch, and I remember I had one of my figures, one of, or maybe one of Zach's figures uh, from home that I had with the kids. I was like, I want you to imagine this. This man is walking with God for, for years. He's walking with God, 300 years, walking with God. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't like God took him like, like, like in some kind of aggressive and angry sort of way. It's that God just took him, as it were, to himself. Now, how it happened, like, like how that all went down, we don't know. It's not like when Elijah was taken into heaven and we get a depiction of what that looked like in 2 Kings. You know, we, we don't see chariots in relationship to Enoch. I don't know how God took him, but all I know is that he walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. We'll talk more about that and what we're told in Hebrews in a moment. But the phrase, walked with God, it's a phrase that's applied also to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, Noah walked with God. It's a beautiful picture of intimate communion with God. Imagine a kind of walking alongside. He walked with God, communed with Him, walked with Him. It's, it's the opposite of walking contrary to God. But it's not just that he obeyed God. It speaks of a kind of intimacy. He walked with God. 
The Septuagint renders this phrase, he walked with God, as he pleased God. Now this is the kind of language we find in the epistle to the Hebrews when the writer of Hebrews uh, wrote there that Enoch was one who by faith did, did these things. Enoch by faith. And remember, it's in verse 6 that we see in Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith it is impossible to please God. So we'd imagine, we kind of start putting these pictures together, that Enoch walked with God by faith. He walked with Him by faith. And he wasn't walking contrary to Him. He walked in obedience to Him. He walked trusting Him, seeking to honor Him with obedience, which apparently included prophesying, even as we see in the verse before us. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Back to Genesis chapter 5 for a moment, where we're first introduced to Enoch. If you were to read through Genesis chapter 5, you would see a kind of sad refrain, sad but true refrain that keeps happening in that chapter. And he died. As that genealogy is set before you, you hear how long people lived and so on, and then you hear, and he died, and he died, as, as a reminder of what sin does. The wages of sin is death. But then all of a sudden that refrain is broken with Enoch's reference. He didn't die. He walked with God and was not, for God took him. The Septuagint says, he was not found, for God translated him. Or to use language from Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5, he was taken away so that he did not see death. So if you're like, what does it mean that God took him? Does it mean he just took his life and he died? No, it means that God took him so that he didn't see death. He was a unique man in the Old Testament like Elijah who did not see death. He was apparently taken to God himself. That was the expectation of the psalmist in, say, Psalm 49, verse 15, Psalm 73, verse 24. Enoch, like Elijah later in redemptive history, was apparently taken into heaven without having died. Now, I want you to think about what a witness this would have been to the watching world around Enoch. It was a witness, to some degree or another, that there was more to life than the world around them. That there's more than just the here and now. There's more than just what your eyes see. There's more than just your temporal existence. The extra-biblical book, so it's not a biblical book that it's included in the canon of Scripture, but the extra-biblical book, Sirach, says something rather interesting. In Sirach, it tells us that Enoch pleased the Lord and was transferred, even as we know is said in the Scriptures. But then it goes on and it says, as an example of repentance to all generations. As an example of repentance to all generations. The implication may be, look, there's more to this life. God is going to judge this world. There's a God to whom you're accountable. And this man actually walked with God and God took him to himself. Now, we don't know much about the details of Enoch's day. We may infer some things when we look ahead to Genesis 6 and we say, look how bad things had become in the days leading up to the flood, and we can infer some of those things back upon Enoch's day. We could look at when uh, the time in which Noah was born. And Noah, uh, Noah's father, Lamech, uh, Lamech uh, called his son Noah, and he said this, this one will comfort us, concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. I think sometimes we could think just because people in the early portion of Genesis lived long lives, that it meant that they lived easy lives. And I think that would be an improper assumption to make. 
A cursed world is a cursed world. A fallen world is a fallen world. And just because they lived long doesn't mean that it was easy. And you could see that when Lamech names his son Noah, there's this hope of comfort. This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. It's as though he was saying life is filled with hard labor. Life is filled with tribulations of many kinds. And people then, like Lamech, who was Noah's father, not like the bad Lamech that we know about. And I'm going to talk about that guy in Genesis. And this Lamech, Noah's father, he was longing, like doubtless many others were, for comfort and for relief. Enoch's translation was, if you will, a witness to life beyond the world that was cursed with sin. That was cursed because of sin. People will go somewhere. And Enoch's translation is a reminder of where every person ought to want to go. Being graciously taken by God into His very presence. And even though the temporal rest that Lamech saw it, can be found in some measure through godly offspring. He was hoping for some rest that would come through his son. And can there be some measure of temporal rest found through godly offspring? Yes, to some degree, in some limited temporal way, yes. But true rest, eternal peace, and ultimately the reversal of the cursed world can only come through one who did in fact taste death. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ so that all who believe in Him might live forever. It would be wrong to look for ultimate peace and rest through any offspring or through any person outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want rest, if you want removal of the curse to come, it could only come. Rest in the eternal sense can only come, and the reversal of the curse can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's turn our attention to Enoch's prophecy, but before we do, I'll ask the question, Uh, from whence came Enoch's prophecy. I don't know why I wanted to phrase it like that. I just did. I wanted like the word whence. And when I can use it, I seek seek to do so. Um, So where did this prophecy come from? Like, I'm sure it was in the Old Testament. Nope, wasn't in the Old Testament. This prophecy of Enoch does not come from there. Rather, it is found uh, in an extra-biblical and pseudepigraphical book known as the Book of Enoch. Now, first, let me establish this. Let's establish what's not happening by Jude quoting from the book of Enoch. And I'll get into some of the details of what he's quoting a little bit from here and a little bit from there, different renderings of, um, of that saying, of that prophecy. Jude is not saying that the book of Enoch is an inspired book of Scripture that belongs in the canon, and the Jews before my day got it wrong by not including it in the canon, and the Christians of today and tomorrow should include the book of Enoch in the canon. There seems to be a little undercurrent of people who are desiring to kind of make, that, make the case for that today, thinking, you know what, I've stumbled upon the book of Enoch, seems to be a lot of interesting things in there, I think it's canonical. Is Jude saying that? Is Jude's quotation from the book of Enoch a case for the book of Enoch's inclusion in the canon of Scripture? And I would say the answer is a definitive, definitive no. And the reason being, you want, a, you want a biblical answer for that, and the biblical reason would be, well, we see the Apostle Paul, for instance, on a few occasions, quoting from, say, Greek poets. And when he quotes, quotes from Greek poets, he's not saying, okay, I'm giving you a little hint here, everybody, follow the breadcrumb trail. I'm giving you a hint that these writers' writings should be included in the canon of Scripture, or at least the one that I'm quoting from. Let me walk you through some examples of this. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul stood in the midst 
of the uh, Areopagus, he preached truth and he stated, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now there, he seems to be quoting from, or at least making allusion to, two poets, two Greek writers, one by the name of Arathus, and the other one of uh, the one whose name was Cleanthes. Uh, one writing in a work called Phanom, another one a hymn to Jupiter or a hymn to Zeus. And he is surely not saying, you know what, these works should be included in the canon of Scripture. He's basically saying, look, I- I'm trying to help you understand what you know through the lens of a lie. Look, some of, you, some of your poets, they got this, this idea that in him we live and move and have our being. They have a wrong God in view, but the sense of that is true. I'm just trying to show you who that true God is. So he saw it useful for the case that he was making in the moment. It wasn't a case for the inclusion of those works to be in the canon of Scripture. You go on, and there are other examples of this. When Paul, likewise, in 1 Corinthians, quoted the Greek poet Meander, saying, remember this statement from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33? Evil company corrupts good character. He's quoting a Greek poet there, Meander. And he was not saying that Christians should therefore go thenceforth and consider Meander's work as spirit-inspired. Rather, simply put, he saw it as an appropriate reference to warn Christians of the spiritual dangers and corrupting influences of those who were outside of the faith. Most immediately, those who rejected the resurrection. And so he saw it as an appropriate reference and he used it. You could go on and you would see Paul quoted the 6th century Greek poet Epimenides in his epistle to Titus, chapter 1, verse 12. And again, the implication was not that this should be included in the scriptures. So therefore, let the biblical examples that I just provided you with, from Titus chapter 1, verse 12, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, and from Acts chapter 17, you could look at verses 28 and 29, let it establish the fact that the quotation from the book of Enoch is not a legitimate argument to say Enoch's book, pseudepigraphical writing, should be included in the canon of Scripture. Secondly, I do want to say this. Let us consider the case for the preservation of this prophecy of Enoch. Because this was a rather remarkable thing. Enoch was the seventh from Adam, and yet this prophecy was, by the grace of God, preserved. Now I want to give us a couple of examples of preservation that we see in the New Testament. Okay? Because we see this kind of thing happening. We see it kind of in a, a short-term lens, so to speak, and we see it in a longer-term lens. In the short-term lens, the example that I would give you would be Acts chapter 20, verse 35 where the Apostle Paul said that the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not found in the Gospels. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It was a statement that Jesus made and was by the grace of God preserved and remembered and recalled by the Apostle Paul. So that's a kind of short-term example of how a statement was graciously preserved by God. A longer-term example would be for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, when the Apostle Paul references Janus and Jambres, who, if you remember, when we studied verse by verse through 2 Timothy, we said, well, those men appeared to be, contextually, when you look at historical writings, they appeared to be the magicians that opposed Moses. Well, that happened years and years ago, but it was nonetheless graciously preserved by God. So, I think when we come to this prophecy of Enoch, 
we could say that within that pseudepigraphical, extra-biblical book, there was nonetheless, at least in parts of the, uh, at least in parts, the prophecy was preserved to some degree for generations since Enoch first spoke it. Without getting into the details here, I'll nonetheless just give you this, because I think it's worth knowing. Enoch's quotation, the one that Jude is providing here, is a mingling of the Greek text, the Greek text of that work, along with the Aramaic text, and includes a specific inclusion of the word kurios to show that this prophecy points to the return of Jesus Christ. So here's a good summary statement here. Apparently, the Holy Spirit, through Jude, took from what had been preserved so as to record the prophecy as intended and initially stated. Amazing. Couple takeaways right here. A uh, couple takeaways. I think it's worth us noting. A, we should be thankful, not just because Thanksgiving is coming up Thursday, but we should be thankful for this. And B, we should be careful. We should be thankful. God preserved that prophecy, not just for the people of Jude's day, but for us. It was God's gracious preservation so that we might be hearers of the prophecy that we're about to hear. We should not look lightly upon that. God and His sovereign providence preserved this prophecy so that people like you and I could hear it and hear beyond Enoch and hear the voice of God through it. What a gracious God to do that. God has a message for you. Spoken from the one who was the seventh from Adam and He's preserved it so you might be able to hear it today. So gracious. And the second thing is we ought to be careful we ought to be careful not to use quotations in the Scriptures as a reason to go beyond the Scriptures and add to the recognized canon Old Testament or New Testament. Be careful, saints. There are people around who will want to do that. You know, just as a little bit of a pastoral aside, you always got to be careful when that kind of thing happens because there are Gnostic tendencies that exist even in the professing church today where people are like, I'm not settled just with, you know, I'm not just satisfied with just having this. Everybody has this. I want something more. If I'm going to stand out from these other Christians, I need some secret information. Everybody's got this Bible, but if I want to put myself in a different league, if I want some secret knowledge which is going to separate me from the crowd, well, maybe I'm going to become a master of the book of Enoch. So be careful. Do not use quotations in the scriptures as a reason to go beyond the scriptures. And especially, of course, not to add to the word of God, to the recognized canon, Old Testament or New Testament. Now let's get to the prophecy. Let's turn our attention to the prophecy of Enoch. So we've basically seen in verse 14, we've seen who Enoch was, right? We, we, we looked at what's said about him. Uh, he's the seventh from Adam. He prophesied, so he was a prophet. He functioned in the prophetic office, prophesied about these men. And you say, who are these men? The apostates, right? That's who, whenever Jude is saying these men, that's who he has in view. Those who had infiltrated the church, those who had drifted from the faith, and so on. And now let's get to the prophecy. In verse 15, we see the prophecy. The prophecy concerns the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the first line of it. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. Now, one of the things I find very interesting about this prophecy, and this stuck out to me early on in my Christian faith. I had read a book that called attention to this, and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting to note. 
that if you were to kind of look at the biblical timeline, you'd say the first prophecy that's made in the scriptural timeline comes from God himself. And you see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And you see in that prophecy there that the seed of the woman, speaking of Christ, would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. And so we have a a prophecy there that concerns Christ, and we know that when we look in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that the God God has promised to crush Satan under the feet of his people, and we know that Romans 16 correlates with that and so on. But the second prophecy, per what we know, came from a man, and particularly from Enoch. And amazingly, this is in the time before the flood, it concerned the judgment that would come when Christ returned. So the second prophecy that we have in the biblical timeline is from a man, and it concerns the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even seven generations after man's creation and many generations before Christ's coming, Enoch prophesied of Christ's coming, second coming. Now we are immediately called to attention. Look at the word there in your text, behold, behold. As though with arrested attention, we are to give attention to what follows. Behold, calling attention to what follows. Jude then described the Lord as the one who comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. The word comes is actually in the past tense. You could render it as came. And the likelihood is that it's rendering prophetic certainty. It's as good as done in the mind of God. You could look at Romans 8.30 as a kind of... Uh, correlation to that, right? For those he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's, it's as good as done in the mind of God. And maybe other implications to the past tense here, maybe Enoch is kind of recalling what he saw in his mind or in the vision and the prophecy. We don't know all the dynamics, but the least of which we could say is it communicates prophetic certainty. The Lord comes or came with ten thousands of his saints. Now, important to note, now I've said this many times, but for anyone who doesn't know this, I'll I'll say it again. When you see that word saint, here it's inflected, it's it's, it's conjugated, and it's the word here, hagiais, hagiais. And it literally just means holy ones. You'll see this addressed, and Paul will use it, say, in his opening verses of Philippians, right? To the saints who are in Philippi, who are saints, Are they a certain special class of Christians who have attained um, extra merit that they don't need, that can go in a supposed treasury of merit? Are they like the special ops of Christians? Is that what saints are? No, not when you look at the Scriptures. Paul's addressing all the saints who are in Rome, every Christian. The ones who are mature in the faith, the ones who are weak in the faith. He's addressing all Christians as saints. The word saints means holy ones. It means those who have been set apart by God, by the grace of God, in the gospel of God. That's what holy ones means. But here it's worth noting that holy ones doesn't only refer to, or cannot only, it doesn't need to only refer to saints, but it could refer to angels. Angels are holy ones as well. Now it's interesting, when you look at verses that speak of Jesus' return, you can see that when Jesus returns, he is going to be with the glorious angels of God. And he's also going to be with his saints. There's a bunch of verses to see that. Matthew 24, 31. Matthew 25, 31. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, which we read before. Colossians 3, 4, which I read before. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. Revelation 19, 14. So when Jesus comes, he's coming with his holy angels. 
The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise to meet Christ in the air. Those who are alive will be transported in a moment in the blinking of an eye. And at the end of the day, so to speak, you have both saints and angels with Christ as he returns. So when the Lord comes with his holy ones, ultimately it's going to be saints and angels. Most immediately what what may be in reference here, though, are angels. Because the context is judgment. So when the Lord comes, he's coming with his angels, the trumpet will sound, and we know that his people will be gathered to meet him in the air. And that brings us to uh, verse 15, where we see what Jesus is coming to do, to whom it will be done, and why. So first, look at the, uh, look at the beginning of verse 15. Christ, we're told, comes to execute judgment on all. I call your attention to a specific fact. It's the way the Trinity works. It's the way the triune God works. The Father works through His Son by His Spirit. So we shouldn't be surprised that when you look in the Gospel accounts, particularly you look at um, John chapter 5, you can look at verse 22 and verse 27, we see that the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. There are other verses that you could reference, Acts 10.42 Acts 17.31, Romans 2.16. This, when Jesus comes, this involves temporal death for those who are alive and unrepentant at His coming and is followed by eternal punishment. And when the time comes, sentencing to the lake of fire as seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Second, we're told that Christ comes to convict all who are ungodly among them. Still in verse 15, a little bit further in. The word for convict here is an interesting word. It can also be rendered as to expose or to show someone their guilt. It's a Greek word, elekko. And so you can have this implication in this language that it's not only to execute judgment, but as a part of that, people will be convicted of their sins in the sense of that they will be shown their guilt. That, to use language from Romans, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will become guilty before God. There will be awareness. Men and women live in this day and age and without the Holy Spirit will suppress the truth and unrighteousness, will suppress the reality of their guilt before God. But in that moment, the guilt of men and women will be shown before their very eyes. They will see it. They will see it. Christ will convict all who are ungodly, those who have lived in willful blindness to their own sinfulness, will have, if you will, their eyes forcibly open to their guilt at Jesus' coming. Which makes me just even plead with you in this moment. May the Holy Spirit open your eyes so that you see your guilt now. If you don't see your guilt now and your need for a Savior, rest assured, rest assured, you will see your guilt at some point. But by the grace of God, see it now. More about the good hope that there is uh, against the backdrop of ungodliness. And we see in third, I want to call your attention to the notice on the emphasis of the ungodliness of these individuals. You look at verse 14, four times the word ungodly is referenced here. Four times. That's a word in the Greek that draws particular attention to their irreverence towards God. They are not godly. They're not like God. They don't have reverence towards God. That's what every one of us were before coming to know Christ. Sadly, even though those who are godly made righteous in Christ can still act ungodly, but these are people who are characterized by ungodliness, by their irreverence towards God. And notice it has not gone unnoticed by God. 
He notices all of it. It's referenced four times right here. But there's good news for every ungodly person. If there'd be perhaps a person in this room that says, I'm I'm ungodly. I know I'm ungodly. I know that I haven't spoken with the proper reverence that I ought to towards God. I know that I've sinned in my thoughts. I've sinned in my deeds. I know, I know I fit the characterization of the ungodly. I have good news for you. And it comes from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Simply put, not quoting the entirety of the verse, just part of it. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. You know, it, it, it's, it's not those who are well that need a physician. It's those who are sick, who know that they're sick with sin. It's the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you can apply that, blessed, that beatitude, the first beatitude and the second beatitude there, to the reality of those who know that they're poor in spirit and are bankrupt spiritually, and those who mourn over their sins. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Fourth, I want you to notice the particular attention given to the words that ungodly sinners have spoken against God. Look at the language. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. So no decibel of blasphemy has gone unnoticed by God. Every decibel has been heard by Him. Whether it's been muttered or loudly proclaimed, He has heard it. Now the word here, that word for harsh, skleros in the Greek, speaks to unyielding and rough, kind of severe language that people can sometimes use towards God. God has noticed it. But it's not just that kind of language that God has noticed. You compound that with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, where Jesus said, For every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. They'll give account for harsh words, scleros, unyielding words that they spoke, that they had spoken about God. They'll give an account for every idle word, every slip of the tongue. God will hold an unrepentant sinner to account for all of it because he's just and he's omniscient and nothing escapes his omniscience and no sin will escape his justice. J.C. Ryle well noted, if there were no other text in the Bible, speaking about Matthew 12, 36, this passage ought to convince us that we are all guilty before God and need a righteousness better than our own, even the righteousness of Christ, Philippians 3.9. I echo that. If there were no other text that would show us that we need a Savior, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, imagine if every idle word you spoke, every wrong word you spoke, every harsh word you spoke were to be called to account. And if others were here, yet alone God, Well, it may seem like people get away with sin in general. It may seem like people are not held to an account for their blasphemy against God either. But these verses are a reminder, I think, that God has not missed a minute, not even a second. If you want to break that down further, of course you could. He's not missed any of the unrepentant behavior exhibited towards him. He's not missed a a moment of anything. Human beings, whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not, are all accountable to him. You could choose not to believe it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. My belief of his, his awareness of our sins does not make his awareness of our sins any more or less real. And because of that, there is a coming judgment. But you can't avoid it. And you could receive, if you will, the plea bargain of a lifetime. God has called you the defendant 
to give up defending your sin and arguing for your supposed righteousness. I don't know much about the legal dynamics of a plea bargain, but I know that's part and parcel of it. Right? You got to say, I, I, I got to give up here. I got to give up. I have to admit that I'm guilty. If you're going to take a plea bargain, that's what you have to do. You have to plead your guilt. You must put all of your hope. Then, having done that, say, you know what? I admit that I'm guilty. Then you must put all of your hope in the person and work of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Believing, to use language from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that he died for, then you personalize it for your sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the result is, and this is where it goes way beyond the plea bargain, the result is not a lesser sentence, nor merely a dropping of the charges, seeing as it was paid by another. Rather, you receive Christ's righteousness as your very own. The forgiveness of sins and eternal life and forever you are a blood-bought son or daughter of God. That brings us to verse 16 and we'll end with verse 16 today and we'll see a little bit more of the character and the methods of apostates and we get, I think, a good Thanksgiving exhortation by way of implication when we look at these verses. Uh, This verse. Verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So connection between this verse and what's come previously before, um, well, there are a few of them. First, Jude's going to essentially expand upon their speech. He just called attention to the harsh words in which they've spoken. Now he's going to expand upon that a little bit here. Concerning the former, their speech, and the latter would be um, some of their methodology, We see how they typified the behavior of the Israelite generation that grumbled in the wilderness. You could refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, as a verse to reference there. They are described as grumblers. Grumblers. The Greek word that's used here may have that kind of uh, flavor. It's kind of like connoted in the word gongustes. Gongustes. They're, They're grumblers, murmurers, complainers. It's a word that's used only once here in the New Testament. It's used, however, multiple times in the Septuagint to refer to the murmurings and the complaining of the children of Israel. Remember when we, started, we studied through verses 5 through 7? We looked in, verse, in our study of verse 5 at how Israel just relentlessly complained. Well, like over and over again. They're, they're, they're brought to the Red Sea and they're complaining. They're brought just over the Red Sea and they're complaining. God gives them bread from heaven and they're complaining. After that, they're complaining, 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 complaining. Never satisfied, never content, never happy. That's, that's who they were described to be. Now, I told you that this word that's used here, it's only used once in the New Testament, but there's a similar word that is used, um, gongusmas, a similar word, which means grumbling or complaining, and it's used by Paul when he speaks to the Christians in Philippi. So it's not just apostates who grumble, but Christians need to be warned not to because we have the propensity too, which is why Paul said, do all things without complaining or disputing. Do all things without complaining or disputing. More about that. We'll apply that more in a moment. We'll look at the next word. They are also described as complainers. Complainers. You're like, well, that sounds like the last word. Is that kind of like a synonym for the previous word? So complainers here, grumblers there. Two words, but they both basically mean the same thing. 
Yes, to a degree, though the nuance with this word, if you were to look at, at this word in the Greek, it's comprised of two words that basically mean to blame or to find fault, and another word that means allotted portion. So in a general sense, you would say they are fault finders. They find fault. But the fact that it's connected with a word that's associated with allotted portion might connote the idea that they are complainers who complain ultimately to God about the lot that they've been levied in life. So there may be a specific nuance here. Grumbling in a general sense, murmuring the previous word. Here, ones who find fault, maybe generally, doubtless generally they did, but with their lot. And ultimately that would be finding fault with God. And be kind of like, I don't like the way you've dealt with me in my life. I look at my life and I look at other people's lives and I just don't like the way you've dealt with me. I don't like the way my upbringing was. My upbringing wasn't like theirs, and I don't like the way you dealt with me. I don't like the way my physical health was. My physical health has not been like theirs, and I don't like the way that you've dealt with me. You've done me wrong, God. I find fault with the way in which you've governed the providence of my life. That's a very good implication, of what, a very good idea of what's being implied here in this kind of language. It's the opposite of David who said, I have a pleasant lot. And granted, your lot may not be like David's. And remember, David's life wasn't like a, you know, a, a sea of pleasantry that he was just swimming in all the time. Yeah, but he was a king. Yeah, remember what happened before he became king. Remember a lot of the hardships that happened to him during his kingship as a result of his sin. But he can nonetheless look and say, I have a pleasant lot. Every Christian, if you are a Christian, I've told you this before, I'll tell it, tell it to you again. I told you in the message on Psalm 16, I'll tell it to you again. You have received a pleasant lot. A lot better than you deserve if you are a Christian. Because whatever situation that you find yourself in, whatever lack that you've had in your life, cannot compare to the infinitude of grace that you will be on the receiving end forever of. You've received a pleasant lot, a lot so much better than you deserve. Even the worst of our lots, temporally speaking, cannot compare with the greatness of the lot that we receive. You know, we deserve the moment we rebelled against God, the moment we sinned against God, yet alone having a sinful nature, but then committing acts of treason and rebellion against God. You know what we deserve because of our sinfulness? We deserve to be cast into the lake of fire. Like the beast and the false prophet of Revelation, we deserve to be where they will be. That's what we deserve. But what has God given us? Assurance of being in His family forever. A Savior who paid for our sins upon the cross. Yes, yes, I know. The arrangement of the ship of this life may not be the most comfortable or desired. But at its worst, at its very worst, it's better than what we deserve. And for every one of you, son or daughters of God, let me tell you, soon the boat will dock on the celestial shore where all the difficult seafaring that you and I have experienced will be nothing compared to the glory that will forever be beheld. I want to apply this just a little bit further. You and I may not be (laughs) grumbling apostates by grace of God. By the grace of God, we're not. But we don't want to be complaining Christians either. (laughs) You don't want to be a grumbling apostate, and you don't want to be a complaining Christian. When watching the Western world as we know it, as we see it today, plunging itself into Romans 1 endeavors as though they were laudable achievements, you will not have a shortage of things to complain about. If you know the right Twitter feeds to go on, 
you, you know you could find things to complain about any given day. I know, okay, look at that Twitter feed. I'm, I'm going to find, you know, some of the better renderings of the news of the day, and I will find things to complain about. You don't even have to do that. You basically just walk out your door, pick up a newspaper, turn on the TV, and you could find that there's no shortage of things to complain about. It doesn't stop there, right? Those who are ill might complain that they're not well. Those who are lonely might complain that they don't have more company. Those who are financially strapped might complain that they don't have more money. Right? The, the list could go on. Right? And you know it could go on because we experience it. You're going to be tempted to complain. And I just want to encourage you to avoid grumbling. Avoid complaining. And if you were to ask me, how do you do that? I could break it down extensively, but I would say this, basically. A, you start here. You start by thanking God that Jesus Christ died for all of your grumbling and complaining. That's where you start. To, to kind of borrow an idea from a message years, years ago, you want to take an axe to the root of complaining, you start right there. You say, I thank God that my Savior died for all of my complaining, all of my discontentment, and so on. I think you start there. You see that B, this, I would say B, you see that complaining is ultimately grumbling against God's providence. Because really at the end of the day, right, you may be complaining and say, I'm not really upset with God, I'm upset with so-and-so. I get that. But really, ultimately, all of our complaining has to do with God's dealings, God's providence. Because in God's providence, He has allowed whoever or whatever to do what they did or whatever to happen. So if you kind of cut through the mirage and you say, I may be complaining about so-and-so, but I'm really, at the end of the day, complaining about God's providence. I may be complaining about my pain or my situation, or my circumstances, or my finances, but I'm really complaining against God's providence. Rather than Paul, who by the grace of God learned to be content in all situations, Philippians 4.11, I find myself discontent in situations, and ultimately, if I kind of peel through the layers, ultimately, that discontentment is aimed at God. I don't like what's going on in society. And you could imagine, as though it were God were to say, I've put you here for such a time as this. I've put you here to be light in the midst of a dark world. I promised you an eternity in my presence. I sent my son to die for you. You can endure a little bit of tribulation just for a time, for a glory that's not worthy to be compared with this. You could imagine if the Lord were to say something like that to you, you'd be like, that's right, it's true. <laughs> I am wrong. I cover my mouth. I feel like a backhook. I feel like Job. I, I want to sit in, in, in ashes and so on. Sackcloth and ashes. I think you remind yourself, uh, too, and I think, I think this helps. You remind yourself of how God feels about complaining. Um, I'm not, you know, I think this is a, a very, it, you're not under the old covenant as a Christian, right? You're under the new covenant, which makes you rejoice greatly. But to get an idea of how God feels about complaining, I read um, uh, these verses to Lauren because they just jumped out at me. Listen, listen to this. Because you, and I didn't read it to her because she was complaining. So it, the context was not complaining. The context was, wow, like this, this is strong language that really connotes, I think, how God feels about complaining. So it's in Deuteronomy 28. And you remember the judgment that God had promised would come on Israel if they did not keep the covenant and so on. Well, after he kind of outlines some of that, he says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything. 
Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. God had blessed that generation so much. Freed them from Pharaoh's grip. You saw, go back to the message on verses 5-7. through seven. They just complained. They didn't repent. They just kept complaining. At the root of their complaining was unbelief. Unbelief. You think of what we heard earlier during our testimony time, right? Where does a testimony like that, when you think about what our sister Gloria shared, about trusting in God in the midst of tribulations, right? Where does that come from? Where, where's the soil from which that springs? It comes from the, the soil of faith. And that soil is only that soil because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And these men, as we're going to find out in verse 19, did not have the Holy Spirit, the apostates. So they did not have saving faith. And without that, you know what's going to come over and over again? Grumbling, complaining, and murmuring. But by the grace of God, because of the presence of the Spirit of God, even though we may not do it perfectly, and I know we don't, I don't, we can nonetheless do it. We can give thanks to God in all circumstances. And finally, I think you remind yourself of your assured future in Christ. You remind yourself of your assured future in Christ. So if you want to sever the root of complaining, I think you remember that Christ died for your sins. You remember that you're really ultimately complaining against God's providence. You remind yourself of how God feels about complaining. And then you remind yourself of your assured future in Christ. I'll quickly, thirdly, um, call your attention to how they walked. Look at uh, verse 16. Towards the middle of it, they walked according to their own lusts or desires. That word lust or desires could be um, rendered as either of those. So you shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that the apostates were complainers. Why? Because they walked according to their own desires. To use language from Matthew Poole, I love this little quote. Their lusts were their law. Like that, their lust, their desires were their law. And when they couldn't meet the law's demands, they became, and I specifically chose this word because I think it connotes it, cranky. Their lusts were their desires. I want, I want, I want. And if I don't get what I want, I get unhappy. See, that's the kind of thing that we want to stay far away from. That's not the behavior of a saint, though of course we can fall into it and we should quickly repent of it. That's the behavior of an apostate. And then finally, notice some of the methodology they use. They mouth great swelling words. Mouth great swelling words. This, the, the language here that's used for great swelling, it's one word in the Greek. It's used twice in the New Testament. It means swollen or excessive or oversized. And it can appear to speak of uh, them being braggarts, that they boasted, they bragged, they spoke with inflated and empty words. This is the kind of behavior that is connected with the Antichrist who is to come, that kind of speech. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 11, Daniel wrote, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous or great words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So it could speak to the, the, the grandiose way in which they saw themselves. Perhaps it could be an element of the language that they used, that their words might sound impressive, but they're hollow. They used grandiose language, but they were empty spiritually. But notice why they did what they did. And this is where we conclude for today. They did what they did to flatter people to gain advantage. To flatter people to gain advantage. Interesting nuances 
that can be noticed about the word that's used here um, for flattering people. It can be rendered as flattering faces, even more literally admiring faces, a kind of idiomatic expression that speaks of praising someone insincerely. And why did they do this? They did this to gain advantage. They tell people what they want to hear so that those people will in some way do what they want. And if you say, what do these apostates and what do these false teachers want? Well, if you were going to answer that question just from Jude, you'd say, well, two things jump off the page. A, pleasure. They want pleasure. You could look at verse 4, verse 10. You could look and you could see it here. Uh, You could look at verse 16. And they want money. You could see it in verse 11. Look, there's no shortage. I, I, I wouldn't doubt that they did this interpersonally with people. But remember, we've seen contextually there's reasons to think that they were not only just people among the assembly, but they were people who had teaching positions in the assembly. And there's no shortage of teachers out there today who will scratch itching ears, who will tell people what they want to hear. Right? Some people turn on t- preachers just because they know what they're going to hear and they want to hear it. But I want to be told I'm going somewhere. I want to be told I'm going up. A promotion's coming my way. I want to be told that today is going to be a good day because I'm going to get the desires of my heart in some way, shape, or form. Like every day that I put this person on, he's always telling me I'm going to get what I want. I like him. I like him. To to think like that is to think of Ahab, right? And and Ahab's kind of thinking, right? He didn't want to hear what the prophet Micaiah said. Because, no, Micaiah always says things I don't want to hear. He always speaks things that that are bad. But the false prophets who said, go up to Ramoth, Gilead, and prosper, he's like, I like them. He liked them so much, he kept listening to them, even to the point of going to Ramoth, Gilead, and not prospering, but dying. But they told him what he wanted to hear. What did he want? I don't want to hear what Micaiah is saying. I want to hear what they're saying. So just always be careful. I think one of the things that I, not not to go into this in extended detail, it's, at this time, I'm going to close shortly. But I think one of the things that I didn't know early on in my Christian faith, when I would watch a channel like TBN, I'm a new Christian, and I didn't know that you know a decent portion, an overwhelming portion, an overwhelming, overwhelming portion of what's on TBN would be stuff that I would want you to stay away from. As I was just reading the scriptures, and you start reading the scriptures, and you're like, you just look how prophets of God and Jesus and New Testament scriptures are calling attention to sin over and over again. Don't you find it weird? At some point, George, don't you find it weird that that's not happening here? That's a big problem. But they are telling people what they want to hear. You know, you're going to get a promotion. You're going up. You're the head and not the tail. All of these things with application to temporal wants. Teaching people to chase the very things that the Scripture says will lead you to destruction. Run after money. Go for it. Sow this seed so you can have more money. Go for it. Oh, I, I feel, I feel the, the anointing is here right now. And if you do this, then you know it's going to be a season of blessing. Send money to my ministry. I don't know who you are. I don't know what kind of sin you're living in. I don't know how much you've rejected the gospel. But if you send money to my ministry right now, you're going to have a season of blessing. You're going to have doors open and all of these things. Why? Because it's what people want to hear. People want money. 
People want these kind of things, temporal pleasures and so on. So be aware that Jude is saying that's who these people are. They flatter people. They tell people what they want to hear. You're great. They're not going to tell you you're a sinner. They're not going to tell you you're going to hell if you reject the gospel. Why? Because people don't want to hear that. People have itching ears. They want to hear, I am good. I am prosperous. I am healthy. I am lovely. I am great. With or without Christ, it doesn't matter. He's inconsequential. And I would just encourage you, Don't forget what you've seen right here. That's who these people are. They flatter to gain advantage. If you're looking for a self-help guru as a preacher because your priority is you and not Christ, you'll find plenty of preachers who will Christianize that pursuit for you. If you're preoccupied with money, but you don't want to give up the moniker of Christianity, there are plenty of preachers who will fan the flame of your love for money and help you chase the very thing that the Bible says do not chase after and can usher someone away from the faith and usher them right into destruction. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you desire the robe of religiosity, some connection, to be sure, with the faith? There are preachers who will help you ignore and reinterpret all the scriptures that clearly teach that discipleship involves acknowledging your sin and dying to sin. So if you want the robe of religiosity without the terms of repentance, you'll find plenty of people who will put that garb of religiosity upon you. The point is, one way or another, apostates will flatter hearers to the end that they get what they desire. And God loves his people so much that he warns his people about this. Don't listen to them. Contend for the faith. And now, having considered what we've considered, Lord willing, in our next time, Jude, having warned us over and over again about apostates, will now begin to unpack for us what he means by contending for the faith. So we'll we'll look at that, Lord willing, beginning next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you and your great love care for your people your sheep who know the voice of the Good Shepherd, hear your voice in the text of Scripture and are warned against false shepherds. Father, we pray that you might help us, Lord, not only to be aware of false shepherds, but that, Lord. I pray for every person in this building, Lord, that you would so work that our ears would be more and more tuned to hear, as it were, to hear the apostate likeness the apostate nature of those preachers who go in the name of Christ, yet do not proclaim Christ as they are told to proclaim Him in the Scriptures. And Father, at the same time, we pray that You might fan the flames of our love for Christ, Lord. We do not desire, just to use language from Ephesians 2, to be aware of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Lord, and forget our first love. To know that there is apostates that we must stay away from is one thing, but Heavenly Father, we pray that you would fan the flame of our love for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May we continue to long for His coming, long for our going to Him or His coming, Lord, whichever would come first, that moment where we're going to see the One who loved us and bought us and washed us from our sins with His own blood. Help us to long for that moment. Help us to be found warning others that there is a judgment to come doing it, Heavenly Father, in truth and with gentleness and with respect, but nonetheless doing it, Father, and proclaiming Christ as the sufficient sacrifice for sins. Help us, Father, to not complain, but to be thankful 
Help us, Father, to sever the root of discontentment and to grow in the grace of being content. We do not put our trust in our own ability or pursuit. We thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit. And we trust that by your grace, he will bring forth the fruit of patience and self-control in our lives so that we might speak in ways that befit you and that we might wait patiently, even as David described himself in Psalm 40, knowing that you are the rescuing God who in your time, in one way or another, will take your people out of the miry clay and set their feet upon a rock, whether it be in the here and now in some temporal way or transported right into your presence, Lord, even as Paul described himself as being in 2 Timothy 4, brought safely into your heavenly kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.